we are starting the show once again, talking more about what is happening in Surrey, the future of policing in that city, and the continued back and forth. You'll remember the rather bizarre news conference yesterday afternoon. We carried it on this show about what the mayor of Surrey had to say about the public safety minister. You know, um, I'm just going to be straight up with you. I have worked in politics for a long time. I have worked in the liquor industry for a long time. I have never, ever used the gender card. But in this case, I absolutely think there is misogyny going on, no doubt in my mind. And actually, it's not just me. I've had many people reach out to me and say he would have never treated Doug McCallum like this. And in fact, um, I would say that probably uh, he was bullied by Doug McCallum, but that's just my position. Well, he is towards me. He is towards me. That's obvious. All right, that was just part of the news conference yesterday. And uh, a lot of people uh, saying, well, hold on a second. That's not actually what's going on here. And taking it a step further, too, saying, why has it become so political? If what we're talking about is public safety and talking about what is the best police force for the city of Surrey. Well, Adam Olson is joining us now, BC Green Party MLA for Saanich North and the Islands. Adam, thank you so much for being with us and for talking talking more about this today. Yeah, thank you for uh, thank you for yours. Well, you have put out a series of posts on social media. Before we get to some of the specifics and and looking at one of the reports that you reference in your posts, what are your thoughts on the fact that we are now seeing this back and forth, some of it getting a little bit nasty yesterday with both Mike Farnworth and Brenda Locke taking to podiums and in the media to continue this conversation? It's, yeah, it's really uh, quite remarkable that they haven't found a table to sit around and, and have uh, a discussion about the uh, the policing challenges that uh, that have been manufactured really here by a series of decisions and and frankly, from my perspective, a lack of provincial leadership uh, that have got us to the situation that we're in in Surrey right now, where you've got two police services uh, both uh, looking to uh, establish themselves as the single police service, but uh, you know an increasing pressure on policing services across the province um, all because uh, all because they seemingly can't get together and, and come up with a decision so it's very very frustrating and and I think it needs to be viewed through the broader context of work that's been going on in this province around policing over the past few years and you mentioned that because there's been so much focus just in the last couple of days about the report that City Council in Surrey commissioned, that city report that they looked at in the in-camera meeting before making uh, taking that vote, that vote to stay with the RCMP. Uh, you referenced, though, a report that went to the public safety minister, and this was an all-party special committee looking at the Police Act and the fact that that's been sitting around and wasn't acted upon. Can you talk a little bit more about that specific report and what's in that? Yeah, the, the special committee uh, to reform the Police Act was a committee that was struck by this minister, by Minister Mike Farnworth, um, uh, following the uh, murder of George Floyd down in the States. And there was a uh, you know, considerable amount of pressure for this minister to act. So he struck an all-party committee. We undertook dozens, hundreds of hours maybe of testimony, li- listening to 
to um, community members, to stakeholders, to experts about policing in this province. And, 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 and I think it's important, the name of the committee, Reforming the Police Act, not Reviewing the Police Act, but actually it was a project of reform. And that's exactly the report that we put in front of the minister of April in, in April of 2022. It was uh, 11 main recommendations with uh, about 40 recommendations in total, uh, including uh, moving away from the RCMP to a provincial police service with more uh, regionalization, more you know, community-driven policing uh, culture. And uh, the minister has basically sat on that report for the last 14 months, um, virtually ignored the recommendations that we put in front of him. One of those recommendations, by the way, was to strike an oversight committee like we see other governments doing when they've got these big projects in front of them to bring all three political parties that that arrived at these consensus recommendations together. You know, I think British Columbians uh, will will be surprised when they hear that the BC NDP, the BC Liberals as they were at the time, now the BC United and the BC Greens came up with 40 recommendations that were consensus. And there was a moment uh, where this minister had consensus around the table and could have moved forward uh, building off of that, but instead delayed, uh, waited, uh, sat on the report, didn't act uh, w- with the with the urgency that was needed, and I think has lost that moment. And now what we see is in in Surrey is uh, one uh, I think one example of, of the deterioration um, that that uh, will continue to happen if this minister doesn't take the, the leadership role that is his responsibility as public safety minister. Uh, is it possible, do you think, though, even though the report had consensus and the report really looked at moving away from the RCMP, uh, that that's what the minister was kind of doing when he made the strong recommendation, saying that it's not my decision at this point. Uh, here's my strong me- recommendation. There is money attached if you go with the Surrey Police Service, but Surrey City Council, you need to go and make a decision. And that's kind of how we got to where we are now. Well, I think the, the point that I'd like to go I think back a, a few months and, and say that if the minister had taken the, the recommendations, struck that oversight committee and began the project of reforming the police act and reforming policing culture uh, in this province, then we wouldn't necessarily be in the situation we're in with, uh, with Surrey. We would be on a clear direction to, um, you know, to, to perhaps this being the last uh, contract between the province and the RCMP. Uh, we'd be on a clear pathway towards uh, moving towards a provincial police service that is not uh, the RCMP. Uh, we would we would be in a in a completely different situation. We wouldn't have had a local government election. I've made this point several times. We had a local government election last fall that the minister could have said, "This is not going to be a future decision. The decision was made. We are on a path of transforming the and transitioning the policing in Surrey." Um, you know find other issues to, to campaign about in this uh, municipal election, but policing, the decision has been made and, and, and money has been invested. Now, we see a situation where that hasn't happened, that clarity was not provided, and again, we arrive at a situation where a community has two police services, both of them looking for clarity, neither of them getting it. Uh, from the local government, uh, there, there seems to be much clarity uh, amongst the Surrey Council about the direction that they want to go, and that's in direct conflict now to the, the direction that the provincial government is suggesting but hasn't been clear about the direction that we're going with pr- provincial policing. So, you know, it's this, it, it is a situation that has, uh, that, that has evolved because, um, you know, I go right back to, to uh, 
to 14 months ago when we tabled that report, the, the minister didn't indicate that we were on this path of, of reforming the police. We, we have a report and, um, and, and we don't have the actions from the government that back that up. So, so we are now in this, we're now in this messy situation where the, the minister hasn't been clear about the direction we're going with the provincial police service. And that really informs the, the decisions that are happening at local government levels. Do you think, though, it, it would have been possible for the minister to end the debate to make it that it wasn't a political issue in that last civic election where Brenda Locke ran on a campaign saying she was going to stop the police service, the Surrey Police Service, and bring back the RCMP? And, and I mean, she repeated that yesterday, saying the Police Act is very clear that local governments can choose the type of policing that they want. Yes, but if the minister had embraced the recommendations that were arrived at, and again, by consensus by all three political parties, that we would be moving away, that, that perhaps this would be the last, you know, between now and 2030, some, you know, 20, early in the 2030s when this uh, RCMP contract uh, ends, we would be in this, in this intentional process of, of, of transitioning all of the police services in this province, perhaps. And I think that what I've been encouraging the minister to do is, is be very clear about whether or not this BC NDP government, um, as a government, supports the recommendations that were made by at least some of their members and some of the members of the BC United and, and myself as the BC Green representative on, on the committee. I, either the minister supports that initiative or does not. And, you know, I, I guess we can infer from his silence on that without providing clarity that perhaps that is not the direction that this government wants to go. But I guess what I'm suggesting is if, if the province had made the decision that we were going to follow through on the recommendations that were going to be made, that we were going to listen to the testimony and the, the advice that were given by, by not only the public, but also people who know about policing, the stakeholders, the experts in this, uh, in this field, um, then, then it wouldn't have been necessarily a, a debate at the local government table because we would be on this, it would be very clear that we we're on this process over the next uh, seven to ten years, which is you know, what transformation of policing in, in New Zealand took, as if we were to use one example of that um, experience. And, uh, and so this decision about whether or not we were going to go to a Surrey police service or back to the RCMP it would have been made very clear that the RCMP, you know, may not be the provincial police service uh, in the future. So it's it's the it's the muddiness and swampiness that has been created by not by the lack of clarity uh, that I think has has really cr- created the landscape for this um, <laughs> chaos that we're seeing, where we've got a mayor and a and a, and a public safety minister basically, um, you know forcing each other to sign non-disclosure agreements and then responding to each other through the, through the media and through press conferences. It's really quite a remarkable uh, situation that this, uh, that this issue has deteriorated into. It is uh, that indeed. Adam, we'll leave it there for today. I'm sure there will be more updates throughout the day, but thanks so much for your time. Thanks for your
Well, if you think back to when you were in elementary school, maybe high school, but more so elementary school, I think, if we're talking about field trips, you probably have some fun memories. Maybe you went to the aquarium, maybe you went to somewhere else that sticks in your mind as a very fun and great day with your classmates. Well, there are still field trips taking place, but one in particular that's being planned in Langley is getting a lot of attention and for good reason. Joining us now to talk a bit more about why this particular trip is getting this attention is Cindy Dalglish, a Surrey Education Advocate. Uh, Cindy, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jill. You put a post about this on social media. There have been other posts about this particular field trip. Can you kind of give us a bit of the background or tell us a bit what's happening with this particular trip? Yeah, so actually Tamara Taggart had uh, posted this situation, but before that I had been made aware of multiple cases throughout the province where students have been uh, basically excluded from field trips not just at this time of year when it's the end of the school year and everyone's doing their their, their field trip celebrations and the kind of the wind down, but it, it happens throughout the year as well where students that uh, need additional support are being excluded from these curricular and fun events uh, that are being provided by the schools. And, and I noticed that as well, that you had posted too, that this, this certainly isn't the only time you've heard about this. And in Tamara's tweet thread about this, she goes into great detail about the fact that this is a grade 6-7 class, that this is a class that's going to the water slides at Cultus Lake. But there's one student who has some different needs who is unable to go, which is not sitting well with a lot of people, nor should it be, because that, that just seems horrible. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous, really, in this day and age that we are still uh, showing kids how to exclude others that uh, have different abilities. When we're trying to build an inclusive education system, we're trying to build an inclusive society. And here, at its most rudimentary form, we are showing kids, we're literally modeling for kids how to exclude others that are not uh, as able or are differently able than you. Uh, you wrote as well that it violates the right of students with disabilities if a field trip is planned and it's a trip that excludes them from participating, that everybody goes or nobody goes, find find a different trip. Is there an actual rule? Is that something that is is in the curriculum or where where is that or, or is that something that, that educators would be able to find? So it, it, it varies depending on which district you are in. But if we look back to the the basic piece where field trips are considered part of the curricular hours that a student is uh, required to have. So if a student has been excluded, they are no longer getting the legally required number of hours uh, of curriculum or activity within those school hours. So what that means is they are being excluded based on their on their disability and of course it that's against the human rights act and a, a lot of people have been responding to this too and asking about why this would happen why the school would go ahead and plan a trip like that and and there have been questions about staffing shortages is it a case of and not that it excuses it or makes it okay but is it a scenario perhaps where the supports needed there simply aren't the employees there aren't the the assistants or, or people that are needed that could potentially go on the field trip with this student 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and in most cases, that's exactly what's happening is, first of all, education assistants are not uh, given to a student one-to-one. They are often um, working with multiple students in a given day. So I don't know the specifics of this case, but this is, a, a, in general, this is what's happening is you, you, each EA is working with multiple different students. The other piece to this is when we have education assistants don't have standards of practice, so they may never have learned throughout their education process that they may be required to go on field trips, that they may need to get into a bathing suit, that they may need to go outside of the school building to support a, a student. Uh, and when we don't have clear guidance across the board of what it means to be an education assistant and what it means to support a student, um, these are the types of miscommunications that happen. And uh, then it's the student that loses out. Uh, there have also been a lot of responses saying, well, can't the parents just go or one of the parents go? And isn't that a solution? And, and what are some of the issues with that as, as an idea, a way to, to kind of solve this? Yeah, I mean, in some cases, yeah, parents will and want to go, just like, you know, any other parent would love to go sometimes on a field trip with their kids. Um, but it's not always feasible for many p- parents these days, especially around working and, and being able to afford life in this economy. But deeper, deeper and very important to understand is a lot of parents of children with disabilities or additional support needs, their kids are being excluded throughout the school year, not just this one time. So they've already exhausted all of their vacation and sick time. And they're not getting a vacation. They're not necessarily sick. But because the school was not able to support their child adequately, they are expected to stay home with their student. So we're seeing exclusion around the province, regardless of it being just field trips. We're seeing this happen day in in and day out. And so parents just don't necessarily have the time to take. Or they know that the responsibility is on the school and, and on the education system during these hours to provide education and curriculum to these students. And so why should they? Why should they be forced to do this when that's actually not even their role? Again, if they want to, absolutely, but it should not be mandatory mandatory in order for a child to participate. In the the case of the student in Langley uh, right now, it's it is getting a lot of response, and a lot of the responses are from people saying, "I had no idea that this trip was being planned, and that this student was not going to be included uh, because there aren't those supports in place." And and uh, people seem quite surprised by this. Uh, how would it work then if if the school district or the, the the class was planning this trip? Would the idea idea be that this student then wouldn't even come to school that day? That's that. that that student would sit it out and stay home? Uh, it, that would be dependent on the parents. Um, the school would be required to provide some sort of uh, curriculum that day, um, but parents likely would, would pull their child to keep them home um, again or staying with a family member. I don't know their specific circumstances around that, but if you think about that, Think about what that's doing to that child and uh, the psycho- the psyche of that child um, being excluded, not only excluded by a system, but the kids getting to go and realizing they're leaving their, their peer and their classmate behind. Like This is impacting that family deeply, but it's impacting all of the other students as well. Some of them may be friends with this girl. Some of them may be friends with the family. Um, 
but it, it's setting it, we're modeling this behavior. We're setting this tone that it's okay to exclude people. And it's not, it's simply not okay. And we have the ability and the ways to make sure students get to participate to the best of their ability in these field trips, including at Cultus Lake water slides. Yeah. It's not the most accessible place, Somebody could go with this girl and support her to, to have a great day. And, and at the end of the day, that's what we're asking. We're asking students to belong, to feel like they belong, and to be included. Right. Because even imagine, too, not even just the day of and, and being excluded that day, but the, this class is going to come back and students are going to be talking about it, about how much fun Absolutely. it was, what they were doing. Imagine the student who just through no fault of her own uh, just wasn't allowed to go. Absolutely. Think about the ramifications. Every time a child is excluded, you have to think about how is it impacting everyone? It's impacting that student. It's always going to impact the student and their family the most. But often we turn a blind eye because it doesn't impact our, our kids. So if it doesn't impact our kids and our kids okay, then, it, then I see nothing. But we really need people to be aware of what, what that's setting and what that's doing to the students that are in that classroom as well, as well as the other educators in the building and others who really believe in, in, in inclusive spaces and it's really frustrating to see how we model this as adults are modeling this type of behavior. It's, uh, it is nice to see as well some of the responses. Again, like you said, uh, Tamara Taggart had put this out on, on Twitter. And some of the responses are from parents saying they are appalled. They didn't know this was happening. Uh, in response, they're not going to let their kids go if this is going to be a, a trip that excludes the one student. Uh, you also mentioned uh, more educational assistance. Uh, as, along with talking about this and making sure people know about this, what else do you think is the solution here? The solution is is to make sure when you're planning a field trip or planning something for students for the day that it's for everyone. It, it, you know, yes, the Cultus Lake water slides are a lot of fun. I go with my kids every year. So much fun. But if it's not for everybody, it's not for anyone. It's, it's just simply not. So you either have to make it work or you have to pick an activity where everybody can participate. All right, Cindy, as always, thanks so much for coming on the show. Appreciate you making the time today. Thanks, Jill. Obviously, uh, getting salvage equipment on scene is a top priority. Uh, Unified Command is working through that to prioritize uh, what equipment um, we can get there. There are ongoing operations right now uh, via the U.S. Navy and Transcom to get condi- to get equipment uh, staged in St. John's and to get it on scene. I can't give you an exact timeline of when that's going to happen. But what I can tell you is uh, there is a full press, full court press effort uh, to get equipment on scene as quickly as we can. All right, that was from the news conference held by the U.S. Coast Guard earlier today that as an extensive search and rescue operation is continuing, crews trying to locate a submersible that went missing during that mission to view the Titanic shipwreck. Many have become very concerned with the lack of any information on what might have happened to the expedition. This was off the coast of Newfoundland and hosted by U.S. company Ocean Gate Expeditions. Joining us to talk a bit more about this is Don Muth, Senior Technical Advisor, International Submarine Engineering Limited in Port Coquitlam. Don, thank you so much. I know you've been very busy, so thank you so much for making some time for us today. 
Smith. You're welcome. Uh, when you hear uh, about that from the, the Coast Guard, they're talking about this still being uh, a search mission to find the submersible. Uh, we know that it's been missing since Sunday. What goes through your mind as far as possibilities as to what's happened here? Um, well, there's a few things that could have happened that um, still give us hope. So that's something that uh, the whole subsea community is holding on to hard. Um, they could have had some electronic problems that caused this total lack of communication. Uh, that's probably the best case scenario. Um, if something like that happened, then that still holds out, you know, I'm going to say uh, hope for these people. Uh, that's... And we've certainly been discussing that internally in our company. And, you know, we're all quite concerned. And we've been involved in other sub-rescues many, many years ago. And we're successful and had the people brought up. But there they still had a little bit of communication. So that's, a, that's very valuable. Right. And that's, I think, one of the questions that a lot of people have at this point, too, is with no communication at all. I mean, the, the company knows where the submersible was headed. It was going to look at the wreckage of the Titanic. But without any communication, how much more difficult does that make it to try and pinpoint, OK, if it was uh, off course or, or went to, to it's near the Titanic, but we just don't have communication? How, how much of a challenge does that kind of bring to this service? Uh, that really brings a, a big challenge. Typically, they'd have an acoustic positioning system that would probably be able to, uh, you know, determine its location within 20 or 30 feet from the surface. Uh, and then that becomes very easy to find it. It's a little mystery to most of us that that particular piece of gear is not working unless is normally it has battery, like an extra external battery that uh, will work on that. Um, would be a normal course of events for these submersibles. So it, it, it brings about some, some dark thoughts as well. Uh, one of the questions put to the Coast Guard earlier today as well was the amount of oxygen that is still that would still be available. And I think it, the, the, uh, when it first disappeared, they were saying 96 hours. And that was a guess. And it was a range, I think, from 70 to 96. But hoping that it was on the end of the 96 hours of oxygen. I think earlier today, the Coast Guard said uh, they're, they're modeling it, thinking that there's probably around 40 hours of oxygen left in in the, in the submarine. How, how much does that kind of change? I mean, obviously, it, that we know there are five people on board and, and that, that are we able to pinpoint how much oxygen they could potentially have left? Um, not precisely. Um, all of these calculations are done on what an average human would do just, you know, in their mission. Um, you know, so they're moving and talking and stuff and, but that ranges largely um, on some um, some people can almost double the lifespan of the oxygen by, you know, curling up and starting trying to sleep. And that reduces your metabolic rate and stretches your oxygen out. So 
that would be something that everybody would be encouraged to do in an emergency situation if possible. Uh, but you can also double your oxygen if you start to panic. Right, which I think anybody that's that's thinking what it must be like to be in that situation or, or to, um, to, to, well, it's it's awful to even think about it. But it would be difficult, I think, to, to not panic at some point, given if they if they know exactly what's going on. Um, yes, but panic generally doesn't last a huge amount of time. Um, and I know that we've worked with people who've actually doubled their oxygen time, their lifespan on that. So those are pretty highly trained specialists that have done that. But the average time is probably as good a calculation as you're going to get, not knowing who those people are and how much experience they have. Right. And I think we, we know uh, now we have a better idea just uh, of who it is on, on board. And it's one of the, the, the CEOs or a CEO with the company, which, which maybe uh, he has training with that as far as telling people uh, or helping people, guiding people through not panicking and making the most of their, most of their oxygen. I mean, of course, that's all speculation at this point. Uh, there have been a lot of questions as well about tracking, about why something like this couldn't have a better, uh, say, either a GPS system that is connected to to something on the ground or that there are a better way, not something as simple, obviously, as like, say, uh, an Apple AirTag, but that there aren't better ways to track. Is it because of the depths that it's going to or is that something that would be very challenging? Um, the depth is, is today only a small challenge. The Accuracy of the tracking is due largely to the fact that uh, data doesn't come easily through water. It's very slow. Um, you're, yeah, you can't mm. put a lot of data through the water because it's all acoustics. It's all sound. It's not light or radio waves or other things that have big bandwidth. So your positioning in this case would typically have two positioning systems um, on it. One of them would be rather uh, coarser than the other. But I'm not sure what all they installed on this submersible. And I can only speak to what would be normal to put onto a submersible. Uh, Like I say, the acoustic positioning system should have been able to give them a actively track it and be able to tell where it is relative to the ship and that can be then tied into gps and give a position on the earth right um what is the difference between a submersible and a submarine um submersibles generally have to be taken to position by a ship and launched off of the ship and submarines typically are referred to as ones who you could actually leave from a harbor. Think big military, big long black cigar shaped things. Right. That's a submarine, but there's very few civilian submarines ever been done. Almost all of them are submersibles where they will either tow them out or take them out on a ship. 
And do they have less than um, kind of independence in that sense that they need to be towed out and launched that way? Or they're, they're more, I guess, uh, dependent on, on the ship and, and being attached or, or coming back to that spot? Um, yes, largely because of their power source. Most of them are, most submersibles are strictly battery operated, whatever battery technology they use. And so then they have some limited power. And so you use the ship's main engines to get out onto station, launch, go down, do your mission, come back up, be recovered. And that even includes things that many people are familiar with. Um, You know, I'm going to call them tourist subs um, in places like Hawaii and the Caribbean and Guam. Um, Those they tow out and they run on batteries and then bring them back in, tow them back into the harbor and recharge the batteries. All right. And and looking at some of the uh, the communication systems in this particular uh, submersible uh, with the idea that it, it I believe it has two communication systems. It does make contact with the surface ship and that's what stopped uh, less than two hours, but an hour and 45 minutes after the submersible went into the water on Sunday. Uh, given that what we know uh, about what happened in, in that time period, that less than two hours, do you have a working scenario or a working theory on what you think potentially happened to this submersible? Well, like I mentioned at the beginning, the, the most hopeful is they had some electronic power issue that shut down all of their communication, um, and they lost all power. Um, that's what we're all hoping. We're hoping that they didn't have some sort of a uh, a, a hull leak or a catastrophic failure of any sort. Right. Because. That uh, that bodes very poorly for everybody if that happened. And how does that how does that change things though, as far as searching for a submersible that has lost all power? Um, at that point, there you have to have somebody with an active sonar start looking for them. And I know that there's been people that have been, you know, at least put on standby to get out and do. Uh, those active sonar searches. Um, so far, the Canadian Navy's dropped down listening boys, but they really aren't as active for what you need to find this. So the Canadian uh, government um, has a couple of 5,000-meter um, autonomous underwater vehicles that we built for them, and they are at least on standby getting ready to go out and do sonar searches for this and they can get right down close to the bottom and do big side scan sonar searches and be able to find uh, them if somebody tells them to go. All right. Well, we are all uh, very hopeful, like you said, of uh, the best case scenario uh, outlined and that they will be found uh, soon and uh, we'll be following along with that. Don Muth, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you for calling. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, we're taking a look now at something that is happening in Barrie, Ontario, but there are some parallels, at least to the situation of homeless populations and homeless camps here in BC. And something that the Barrie Council has done is getting 
a lot of response and not everybody is in favor. It was a controversial motion that has to do with what people can give to the homeless community, saying that the, the council is trying to, to deter panhandling. And this is a motion that means people will not be able to give certain things to the homeless in their community. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit more about the legalities of something like this is Sarah Lehman, lawyer with the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Sarah, thanks so much for taking some time today. No problem. Thanks for having me. This is uh, something, the actual motion itself uh, says that no person shall give away, exchange, or otherwise provide at no charge items, products, samples of items or products, or of any other similar item, including but not limited to food, clothing, tents, tarps, or other similar item used as shelter to assist with sleeping or protection from the elements to members of the public uh, from any city property unless authorized by the city. Uh, pretty wordy, but basically saying you're not to give any of these items to help out the homeless, uh, the, the homeless uh, people in the city of Barrie. What are your thoughts when you see this? Well, I think that this is, for lack of a better word, a very interesting approach to an issue that a lot of communities are currently facing. Um, I think it's important to make clear that this is not a criminal offense. Some people, I think, have been considering this to be the city criminalizing this behavior. It's not. This is a bylaw infraction. Yes, it can come with some pretty hefty penalties if a person is uh, the recipient of such an infraction, um, but it's not criminal. I think the other important thing uh, to point out here is that it does leave room for city authorization. So I hope that what we will see will be uh, city-approved government-funded programs or charities uh, who are able to authorize um, the, the, uh, these products to be distributed through um, unhoused communities in order to assist them. Um, I hope that it's not as restrictive in practice as it looks on paper. That's all I can say about that. Right, because on paper it goes on to say that uh, uh, the provisions of this bylaw shall be enforced by municipal law enforcement, a police officer, a peace officer, or uh, anyone else who can enforce the law. It uh, then goes on to say that anyone who contravenes any provision of this bylaw is guilty of an offence under uh, the provisions of provincial offences. And then I think it goes on to say, oh yeah, a penalty is is liable on conviction to a penalty not exceeding $5,000. I'm, I'm doubtful it would ever get to that point, but it does seem like they really want to deter people from doing this. Absolutely. I mean, that's a pretty significant maximum penalty, as you properly pointed out. It's unlikely that, you know, a person um, who's caught, say, you know, giving maybe some food to a marginalized community member uh, on city property would, would face a penalty of that magnitude, but the um, bylaws do provide for it. So uh, there are some significant deterring factors here for people who are thinking about uh, helping their local uh, people in need out. And I get what you're saying too, that this isn't uh, criminal, but this is a municipal bylaw, but is it not really kind of imposing on people? I mean, if somebody goes out and sees somebody sleeping on the street and says, hey, you know what? I have an extra tent and you look cold mm -hmm. and hungry. Here's a tent and here's a burger and, and, and have this. Maybe this is going to make it a little bit better for you. I mean, is it, is it a little bit of overreach that a council is telling people what they can and can gift to other people? 
Yeah, I mean, this is really prohibiting acts of charity and community service on city property. At the core of it, that's what it's doing. Um, What I find troubling about this is that the former version of this bylaw um, that has now been repealed uh, did explicitly allow for nonprofit charities as well as government-funded organizations to hand out these items. Um, and here we see that that is not explicitly mentioned in um, this new version of the bylaw itself. So that is, uh, in my view, uh, something that uh, certainly is a step backwards. And it also, unless I missed something huge in this bylaw, it also, I mean, sure, it, it says you can't give out food and, and shelter to people, but that's not going to stop homelessness. It's not going to solve the problem of, of people being homeless on the street. It's just going to keep people who are on the street being extremely uncomfortable. And in some cases, I would imagine cold and wet. Oh, absolutely. This is not something that strikes at the core issue here that our communities are grappling with. Um, there are, of course, you know, many sides to this issue. Uh, and I think that what this bylaw is aiming to do is curb what some community members feel is a public nuisance in having, you know, it's referred to as tent cities pop up in their communities and neighborhoods. Um, but this isn't going to solve the problem. And people who are experiencing homelessness uh, are going to end up um, having to seek shelter somewhere. So unless our cities and communities are able to provide that, at the end of the day, this is doing exactly what you said. It's just making people cold, uncomfortable, and exposed to the elements unnecessarily. And w- wouldn't there be other ways that the Barrier City Council could go about this? And not that everybody agrees that this was the right move either, but we saw this happen in Vancouver and on the order of the fire chief who said things were very unsafe. There were propane tanks and there were tents that were mm-hmm. making it so firefighters couldn't uh, get to fires in buildings. That It was under that mm-hmm. order that that a tent city was cleared out of the East Hastings Strip. So wouldn't there be other bylaws if the city council wanted to do something and wanted to to stop people from camping on streets? I mean, presumably so. Um, This is a great parallel to draw um, because, of course, where we see that there are hazards to the community and to infrastructure as a result of people erecting tents and other temporary structures, um, there is a public interest in making sure that those potential threats are eliminated or at least mitigated in some way. Um, this bylaw just seems to go in and and try to prohibit any act of charity foul swoop, um, including, you know, handing out things like food and water. Um, so it's not just limited to handing out things like, for example, tents or other structures that would shield people from the elements. And do you think it would survive a challenge? I mean, if somebody's handing out food and water and they get slapped with a bylaw ticket because of this new bylaw, is that not something if somebody challenged it? I mean, do you think that would stand up? Sure. I mean, any type of law, whatever it's passed, is always, you know, challenged at some point, I think is safe to say. Uh, Somebody out there is um, uh, eager to challenge. Um, So certainly, I mean, it it may very well be challenged. um, But we have to also keep in mind that this isn't criminal. um, This isn't a a criminal law that's been passed. Uh, Again, this is a bylaw infraction. And and cities do have the ability and the right to uh, pass bylaws in order to maintain uh, law and order within their own communities. All right. Well, it's certainly getting a lot of attention. Sarah Lehman, as always, thank you so much for your time. 
Thanks for having me.